good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Eric Wall Robinstein. He is the author of, he was a, first of all, he was a former Army infantry officer, and he is a yoga master, and his new book is Waging Inner Peace. How 5,000 Veterans Use the Ancient Secrets of Yoga and Mindfulness to Reclaim Their Lives from Stress and How You Can Do It Too. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Eric. Thank you, Catherine. It's my pleasure. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the show this morning because we've been having all kinds of power outages here at the station, but we finally got connected, so that's a good thing. Um, We're going to be talking about your new book this morning, Waging Inner Peace. I find it interesting because you were a former... Uh, Army officer and now a yoga master, and in my mind, and probably in a lot of people's minds, you know, those two things don't necessarily go together. Here you are, you're an Army officer, and now you're a yoga master. master. How did that, you know, how did that happen, I guess is what I'm saying. Well, it was uh, kind of an interesting chain of events that started um, actually even before I became an Army officer. Uh, Back in uh, 1980, 81, I want to say, uh, I was the victim of an unfortunate mugging uh, in a darkened parking garage in Sacramento, California. And um, while I came off um, without too many bumps or bruises, uh, what did leave me with was kind of a, um, well, what you could think of now in retrospect is a pretty hefty case of chronic stress. Um, what I found after that attack for over a decade was that dark enclosed parking garages or any space, closed spaces for that matter, or people who looked like my attackers, uh, triggered my nervous system into kind of a fight or flight reaction where I would be having panic attacks, uh, insomnia, anger management issues, and a whole host of other things. And this persisted, as I said, for, for over a decade, and it wasn't until I began to put the pieces together that I began to explore ways to kind of heal myself, and that led me to meditation and mindfulness and yoga and things of that nature, and that's really what started the whole trajectory of my, uh, of my movement into to this field, if you will. Okay, so now you're in this field. Uh, you, I mean, you had your own personal, obviously, crisis uh, with post-traumatic uh, stress disorder, really, the same thing that soldiers experience in battle. So you've written this book, Waging Inner Peace, uh, which uh, chronicles, what, 5,000 U.S. military victims and how they came to use yoga to help them to heal for the stresses and to re- or actually to reduce the stresses which were, they suffered in, uh, in war, the horrors of war. Um, why this book? How did you decide uh, what, uh, exactly what happened and, and why did you decide to take this group of, of uh, or to talk about this group of uh, military veterans? Well, it all started, of course, with my personal journey in really kind of using the techniques of yoga and mindfulness for my own healing. That kind of naturally flowed into my role as becoming a a teacher. And finally, uh, in about 2001, I opened the Wellness Center here in Phoenix, Arizona. And during that time, I was helping an awful lot of folks uh, work with chronic stress. And as the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan began to pick up pace, um, I began to see more and more troops and veterans kind of wander into our center looking for some sort of relief from their from their stress 
their, their stress issues. And so there was a little bit of work on that level. And, of course, I had a natural affinity for that population simply because of my background as an Army officer. But everything kind of came to a head in the spring of uh, 2006 when I got a call from a longtime student of mine. And uh, she was uh, understandably panicked because her son, a U.S. Marine, had recently been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. And as I'm sure you and your listeners know, there's um, a whole host of problems when it comes to adequately treating our our soldiers and our veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder because of bureaucratic red tape and not only just the fact that it's a very, very difficult thing to treat. So when she called me, I kind of went to work trying to figure out um, what I could do specifically to help that particular population. And that eventually became what is now known as the bootstrap system, um, and which is the, the basis of the book. What about, you know, what about people who are skeptical? I mean, there's always that kind of skepticism, although I think there's less and less today. I mean, we really are integrating uh, yoga and some of the, obviously the techniques that you've mentioned, even in everyday Western medicine, um, you know, mix. And so I think that it's becoming, you know, what you're doing is becoming more and more popular. But did you get a lot of, like, resistance and feedback from initially when you started these kinds of programs? You know, yoga, meditation, that's kind of soft kind of stuff. How is that going to work for, you know, the overwhelming panic and anxiety that I'm suffering from, particularly, let's say, these veterans? Yeah, there, there's no doubt about it. There, there was considerable pushback um, for, for a number of reasons. And, and you're right, it has become significantly left, less over time. Uh, but it's you know, no secret that, to a very large degree, the military audience and the so-called yoga audience live at opposite ends of the cultural spectrum. So there was a challenge in that regard. But the way that we, we really kind of handled that was to really kind of look at what some of the the techniques from yoga and mindfulness and meditation are, and that is truly they're techniques that are designed to have a particular effect on the mind-body organism um, and to leverage this thing that um, some people call the mind-body connection, which um, on a kind of a side note, um, you know, recently Western science has begun to kind of acknowledge that there is this mind-body connection, Uh, but the funny thing is, at least from my perspective, is that I don't even think of a mind-body connection at all because the fact of the matter is it's one thing. It's one organism. And you don't see minds walking down the street without bodies. You don't see bodies walking down the street without minds. So really what we're doing is using techniques in order to use certain points of leverage in this, this, this organism, this human organism, to affect a change in the way the nervous system is processing information. And so it's simply a technique based process that that really is trying to interrupt certain unhelpful tendencies in the mind and attention. Tell us how exactly works with an example with a case. Uh, Take one of your soldiers, one of the veterans. What happens? What do you do from beginning to end? I mean, you have somebody who, what, comes into your, uh, comes in to, to see you, a family, the person themselves. What's the presenting problem usually and how do you handle it and where do you go from there? Well, the problem itself starts with a whole range of, of symptoms. So post-traumatic stress is the, as I think most people know, the granddaddy of, of stress conditions. And it comes about as a result of the nervous system being asked to cope with more than what it's designed to cope with. 
you know, too often I think we look at post-traumatic stress, and again, this is changing over time as some sort of uh, a dysfunction or some sort of indication that the person is weak or less than or and it, something like that. But the or fact deficient. Of the matter is, There's something I'm, wrong with me. I'm deficient. I can't handle things. It, and and right, sort of blaming the victim. Right. That's the, that's the tape and the belief that some people have. Um, I have a very good psychologist friend who likes to call post-traumatic stress disorder a normal reaction to an abnormal situation, which I think is a really elegant way to get at what's really going on. Because the nervous system itself is designed to go into this fight-or-flight state. It's the state where the body and the mind are really in this heightened state of awareness, getting ready to run away from a saber-toothed tiger or attack a saber-toothed tiger, so to preserve the, the survival of the organism. And so whenever we're faced with a danger, all of these things are designed to light up in the, in the nervous system to help protect us. The trouble is with post-traumatic stress is that the nervous system, in a manner of speaking, and of course I'm oversimplifying to some extent, gets stuck in this fight-or-flight state because of the fact that it's just been asked to cope with too big of a, an event or an event for too long of a period of time. And then that stuckness in what's called the sympathetic state gives rise to a whole host of primary symptoms like insomnia, irritability, inability to concentrate, and then that cascades down, creating health concerns, relationship problems, and a whole host of other things. So when folks are, are struggling with post-traumatic stress, the, the number one complaint uh, typically is uh, insomnia and irritability and inability to function well in their normal day-to-day lives. So in the bootstrap system, what we've done is, and one of the things I didn't mention was that uh, the, the student, Bonnie, who called me and her son, Stephen, Stephen was not living here in Phoenix, Arizona, so I couldn't help him directly. So one of the things that I was forced to do was to figure out how can we package what we're doing here in the four walls of our wellness center into a format that we could push out into the homes of hundreds, if not thousands, of service members and, and veterans to help them on their own turf, if you will. So that was really the challenge. So what we did was to take a look at the, the, the core principles that we were doing, and we built a 10-week a curriculum-based program that was dispensed online and helped people walk people through understanding how the chronic stress puzzle fit together and then gave them specific techniques they could use in order to interrupt the cycles upon which chronic stress depends. And that bootstrap system is right now online serving the thousands of uh, troops and veterans that you referred to earlier. Now, Eric, what's the feedback? Do you get any kind of feedback in terms of hard data and research? Like, it works. I mean, it's a 10-week program. That's pretty short in my book for, uh, you know, the enormity of the problem, the emotional problem that you're talking about or the issue. So do you get feedback in terms of how successful it is uh, over time uh, from either the person themselves or family or uh, I don't, if you work with physicians or psychiatrists? Um, we do. Yeah, we, we did a clinical trial early on, um, which was a short in-house trial, was supervised by, um, by therapists and such. Um, but what we saw was um, a significant reduction in the core symptoms of post-traumatic stress uh, within even the first four weeks of using the program. 
things like irritability went down, insomnia went down, detachment from life, all of the, the core symptoms uh, were, were seen to improve um, in, in the course of the trial. But with that said, um, I think it's important for all of us to acknowledge that there is no silver bullet for post-traumatic stress, um, and there is no quick fixes of, of any way, shape, or form. So our goal here is to uh, do a couple of things. One, for those who are on the, um, the far end of the spectrum where they're dealing with really, really devastatingly uh, critical symptoms, is to act as a, a complementary thera- uh, therapy to other things they may be doing, either under the auspices of the VA or other healthcare providers, to help improve uh, the results that they're getting. And then for people who are kind of towards the mid-range and dealing with chronic stress that is uh, certainly inter- interfering with their enjoyness and happiness in life, but maybe not devastatingly so, to provide them with an in-home uh, privacy-protected way to begin to learn how to manage that stress on a day-to-day basis um, and become more really empowered to uh, do what we call in the book, manage their humanness so that they can live the happier, healthier lives they deserve. Now, Eric, is this an ongoing thing? I mean, you just don't do it. It's not like a one-shot thing that you do. You have to be mindful. You have to be aware. Um, I would imagine that at times uh, you, once you've, like, say, completed the program and you've done it and that, you know, there are other times in your life where you're going to get crises that are going to perhaps uh, reawaken some of those negative feelings or negative responses. Um, so is this a, an ongoing lifetime program that one needs to engage in? Well, you're, you're, you're right on, Catherine, in that um, it, it is a, a process. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit like brushing your teeth in a certain respect, right? You don't brush your teeth once and then just you're, you're done with it. So um, the, the funny thing is, is that as in this culture particularly, We've learned to do certain things to take care of our physical selves. Like we try to eat well, we brush our teeth, some, we go to the gym, we try to get enough exercise and sleep. But there's very little that we do to manage our mental and emotional selves in um, kind of a proactive way. So at the core of the bootstrap system and at the core of the, the book Waging Peace is an understanding of some of the things that are going on on what, what I like to call under the hood of these bodies and minds in terms of how we relate to certain thought patterns and how we manage our attention that can, even, can either lead us to greater happiness and ease and harmony in our lives or to greater stress, angst, and frustration in our lives. And the, the unfortunate thing is that for most of us, a lot of these patterns are, um, to a very large extent, unexamined and unconscious. So the more that we can understand how to, some of the dysfunctions that can happen to any and all of us um, and how to manage them, then that really sets us up to do essentially what you're saying is that over the long haul is just do the small, tiny things on a day-to-day basis to take care of our mental and emotional welfare just like we do our physical welfare. 
Yeah, I think that's really the key, and I think that for some reason we as a culture, we just don't do that. I mean, as you say, we brush our teeth. We don't even want to brush our teeth, but we do, or we floss, or we do all these different kinds of physical things to keep us healthy. But when it comes to the mind, the mind, we don't seem to do that. So um, what you're talking about makes a lot of sense. Uh, also, maybe we only have a few minutes left, so like just getting back to you because you had that that crisis, that, that uh, horrific thing that happened to you in the parking lot. Um, so you're your own kind of, I mean, you're the example, right? So what do you, personally, has, it's, I'm assuming that, you know, it's been, a, what, how many years since that happened, that, that you, you're okay with it, that your own technique works on you? Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, I mean, it's been 30 years, and um, it's been about 20 years or so since um, I started dabbling with these these various different mind-body techniques. And what I found in my own life was not only did it take the edge off of all of the, uh, the symptoms that I was having, but in general, I find that uh, my life is it's happier. It feels like it works better. My relationships are more harmonious. My work life is better. So I'm my own testimony to, to these techniques working um, is that uh, anybody can use them and it can pay off, you know, pretty significant dividends um, if we just put a little bit of time and effort uh, behind understanding what to do and how to do it. Yeah. Uh, well, okay, now, I, we have a website that we can go to, ericwall.com, and Wall is with uh, one L, not two Ls. Um, I mean, because you do a lot of other kinds of work. I mean, author, speaker, mind-body, technologist, you do so many different kinds of things, and you have other kind. You're also the founder of Yoga Pure. Spend a couple minutes in telling us what that is. This is, this is, that is the whole organization that you have in Phoenix, I assume. Correct. Yoga Pura is the, the wellness center, and um, it's, uh, it, we see about 25,000 students a, a year, and so there's a, a, a sizable folks that come through the door, but we really think of Yogapur as kind of our research and development center, if you will. So this is where we develop our curriculums and programs and things like Bootstrap that we push out um, either via the web or in seminars and workshops all, all across the country. Um, I, I do want to mention one other website that's important, and that's the Bootstrap website, which is bootstrapusa.com. And this is where troops and veterans can go to get free help um, using the Bootstrap system for, for stress conditions. So that's, a, that's an important thing for, for your listeners to know we're there to, to help everybody we can for free. Yeah. Great program. I mean, uh, and, and I think the beauty of it, as you say, is not just for veterans, obviously. I mean, it, it really can, it applies to all. What you're doing applies to all of us. And, and that's why it really, that was the genesis behind the book, really, is that we saw so many service members using Bootstrap, but then their family members and their friends began to be curious about it and want it. So we decided to put it into a book form and push that out so that we could help uh, many, many more. Yeah, because I would imagine when you get the person who is the, in social work terms, the identified patient, well, that patient or identified person lives within a, con- within a family, and once that person starts getting better, hey, the rest of the family's got to sort of get on the bandwagon, and I would imagine they also become, uh, you know, part of the program, or they have the potential of becoming part of the program. Well, and you know, the funny thing too, Catherine, is it works the other way as well, and I'm sure you've seen this, um, is that sometimes the, the so-called identified person, the, the service member with the post-traumatic stress, was reluctant to do the program, but the family members began dabbling in it and using it, and they saw 
that it was okay for them to seek help, and they also saw the improvement in their family members. So it kind of works both ways. Either the service member starts or the family members work, but it, it becomes a, um, a virtuous cycle as opposed to a vicious cycle, um, and it's really kind of it's a wonderful thing to see. That's great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Lots of good information. Eric Wall-Robinstein, author of Waging Inner Peace, How 5,000 Veterans Use the Ancient Secrets of Yoga and Mindfulness to Reclaim Their Lives from Stress and How You Can Too. Um, great having you on the show today. It's my great, great pleasure. Thank you, Catherine. Yeah. We're going to say, we're going to take... We're going to say goodbye, and we're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is New York Times bestselling author Gregory McGuire. Gregory McGuire, author of the New York Times bestseller Wicked, turned Tony Award-winning Broadway musical, is back to take a new magical twist on Lewis Carroll's 150-year-old classic, Alice's Adventure in Wonderland. Um, his new book is After Alice, and in After Alice, Gregory returns to the summer day on which Alice disappeared into Wonderland. He introduces the story of Ada, who is off to find her friend Alice, but arrives uh, a moment too late and tumbles down the rabbit hole herself. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Gregory. Well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be talking with you. Great to have you here. I mean, right before the show began, we started talking. You asked me where I'm doing the show from, which is Albany. I do it from Albany and New York City, and actually our studios are in Phoenix, Arizona. I do know you're from Albany, and we have met before. Now I'm going to tell you where we've met. You were in Albany a few years. It was a few years ago, and we were had a it was a small dinner party, and I was sitting near you, and then we went to see 
Wicked uh, at Proctor's Theater in Schenectady. Ah. Yeah. Ah, I mean, you, well then, well then. Okay. <laughs> that was a nice night. I remember that. That was that very was nice. Great night, right. I mean, I mean, there were so many people, so you probably wouldn't remember. But uh, anyway, so, and you are, from, as I said, you're from Albany. I've lived in Albany for almost, almost 40 years. So I'm a person from Maine who was transformed to Albany. But anyway. <laughs> a, a great town, someplace it I really love, and I, lo- and I love going back. And I'm an Albany, you Albany grad, MSW. You are, and I you see. are as well, yeah. Right, Thanks. that's right. Um, okay, so Ada, uh, I guess the first question is, why Ada and why Alice in Wonderland? Well, for one thing, um, Catherine, the Alice uh, bug bit me about 20 years ago when Wicked was first published in 1995 and became a, what by my sights was an improbable success, although my editor always said I knew it was going to do well, uh, my editor said to me, well, why don't you follow up the heels of this successful adult novel based on The Wizard of Oz by writing a novel about Alice. Let's do Alice next. And I, at the time, thought two things. I didn't want to be known as the adult writer who retold children's stories for grown-ups, although that's exactly what's happened. Um, But I also thought, you know, The Wizard of Oz is a fine film and a pretty good book, but it's not a work of genius the way Alice in Wonderland is. And I don't have the cojones, the hubris, the moxie to take on Alice in Wonderland. It's just too good. Who am I? Who am I to do that? Now, 20 years later, several things have happened. One is that I've become a little braver, maybe a little more skilled as a writer. But the other thing is I've, I've, grown up a little bit more, and I've realized, you know what? Great works of art cannot be besmirched by uh, either comic takes on them or by uh, people writing in their shadow or painting in deference to them. If you remember, Catherine, there's a a wonderful Dadaist painting uh, by uh, Marcel Duchamp, I think, Mm -hmm. which is the famous... Mona Lisa with a mustache drawn on it. Well, you know what? Duchamp did not devalue the Mona Lisa, the real Mona Lisa, by using it in his art. He did something different with it, but the real original painting by da Vinci still has power to move and astonish. And when I finally realized that, I thought, why not take on Alice 20 years later? She's coming up for an anniversary. It's time to think about her again. Okay. So... In doing so, I mean, I've heard you say that one of the reasons that you write, uh, not just after Alice, but all you've written, what, 30 books, is um, you have questions about good and evil. Like, where does evil come from? I mean, that's one of the, I guess, maybe overriding uh, reasons that you write all of your books. It's true. It's, it's It's one of the things that we, it's one of the questions I think that, we are obliged as, as citizens, as moral beings, and not, not just as artists or as consumers of art. It's one of the questions we have to actually keep front and center in our heads every day of our lives as we, uh, <laughs> you know, gun our, our, um, our motor, you know, to go through a yellow light and, and see, well, what are going to be the consequences of my action if there's something coming that I can't see? Um, we always have to think about what is going to happen and how we behave in the universe 
in order to avoid doing something wrong or doing something that might even be morally wrong, not, not just a mistake. Uh, so after Alice takes a, a kind of interesting sidelong look at that, and it's a bit submerged, but I'll, I'll describe it in one sentence in this way. When children come into the world being born, they don't know the rules of the universe, and childhood can be described as that period of training in which young human beings accustom themselves to certain immutable laws, like the fact that time moves forward and not backward, the fact that gravity keeps things held together and that if something is uh, let go from the hand, it will drop to the floor, like the fact that people age and change as they age, um, like the fact there is such a thing as authority. Lewis Carroll took Alice in Wonderland 150 years ago and said, what would happen if a child was put into a situation in which one by one, all those rules that regulate the universe, the rules that childhood is meant to inculcate, what if they were one by one wiped off the rule books? What would that be like for a child? What would that be like for a human being? I think for most of us, we would think we'd be headed to... um, psychiatric center at Albany Medical Hospital, <laughs> or uh, in this area where I am now, McLean's, it would be a, a cause of mental instability if suddenly gravity didn't work or time started running backwards. Uh, so I, instead of really saying what's good or evil about Wonderland or what's good or evil in this story, I'm more saying what happens to us if the rules that we're, we're taught are, are going to keep us safe stop working. What do we do then? Let's go. I'd like to sort of get an understanding of what the impact of your childhood had on your writing. Because, uh, you know, I have, I've read a lot about you and listened to some of your interviews. And I think your own childhood is fascinating in terms of where you come from. And you describe yourself, I think, in one of, uh, in something that I read about you, you began writing at the age of six. That's right. Uh, and you grew up in a grew up in Albany, as I guess we said at the beginning of the show. But in sort of a, what a poor background, impoverished. What would you call it? I mean, you well, didn't have. I, I call, it, it wasn't poor, and it was certainly not intellectually impoverished. But my father was a journalist in Albany. Uh, he had uh, been married uh, when I was born. He had four children, and his first wife, my mother, died in childbirth when I was born, leaving him. Uh, a self-employed, rather underemployed man with four children under the age of eight. Uh, uh, we were parceled out to uh, relatives for a while. I was put in uh, an infant home, an orphanage, for a while. Uh, but my father remarried, my birth mother's best friend from grade school, and eventually the family was reunited and the children were brought back under one roof, and my parents went on to have uh, my my second mother and my father went on to have uh, three more children. So we were raised uh, as a family of nine, uh, being supported by my father on a journalist salary, uh, which is never very high under any circumstances. <laughs> but what we did have, the riches that we had, were my parents' commitment to us and the incredible benefit of the Albany Public Library, 
or any public library it would be, but since it was Albany, it was the Albany Library. And so I used to give a talk, uh, for many years I gave a talk that said, orphaned at birth, but raised by kindly librarians. That was the title. And in a sense, that really, that was only partly a joke, because while my parents were extremely strict uh, and dubious about contemporary TV culture in the 60s, uh, they, did, they were not dubious about the value of literature or the value of writing. And so we were allowed to read fulsomely, read without editorial objection, anything we wanted to read. And we all grew up loving to read and loving writing and language as a result. But you came from a different place, let's say, and you're describing your siblings because you said your mother you died in childbirth when she gave birth to you. I mean, that must have had, you know, I'm listening to it from a, you know, a social work filter, like, I mean, the impact of that on you as an individual and on your writing uh, must have been or is great, uh, important, I guess it would seem to me. I, I, think, I, think, I, think, you're, you're, I think you're right, um, Catherine. It's... Um, it's, it's considerable, and I think that it, it, it took some other critic to point out, uh, after I'd been writing for about 15 years, that almost every book that I write starts out with the death of a mother, or the mother is, is absent from the picture. It's almost as if I can't imagine a story unless there's a, a missing mother figure. Um, it also um, makes, it begins to make sense as to why fairy tales meant so much to me when I was eight and nine and ten. I mean, a lot of kids like them. Um, but I think every single fairy tale begins with a mother dying in childbirth and, and a child being thrown on his or her own devices and having to make his or her way in a harsh world. Well, we all have to make our way in a world that we don't understand when we're small. But I think one of the reasons fairy tales meant so much to me and continue to, even though I'm now you know, the beginning of my seventh decade, which means I'm 62, I think fairy tales still kind of suggest to me, oh, this is a little tiny handheld mirror of my own life. And I, too, have to struggle through the woods and fight the demons and, and try to build a, a place of refuge for myself, just as the characters in the fairy tales and in famous children's stories had to do. Gregory, where do you think your creativity came from? I'm always interested in the concept of creativity. And you said, you know, you grew up in kind of, I mean, your background, uh, you know, perhaps you didn't have a lot of money and it was somewhat maybe austere, uh, particularly in today's standards. But That's a you great were, way to put it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but you, you know, you could, you could be as creative as you wanted to be within the context of playing with your brothers and sisters and, and, and creating uh, stories and, I guess, uh, one thing I do, you, you also would illustrate your own stories, and uh, you. Uh, so all yes. of these, yeah. Oh, who you know? Who I wish I knew the answer to that. I will say one thing. Uh, well, I'll say several things, Catherine. One is that um, I have three children that I'm raising. They're three adopted children. They're all teenagers now. One's just out of high school. The other two are in the middle of high school. And while I have tried my darndest to raise them as close to how I was raised. Uh, with a lot of access to books and a little bit of uh, resistance to being overwhelmed by, by video lunacy that, that swamps childhoods these days, they do not exhibit the kind of creativity that I exhibited when I was a kid. They never played 
the way I played. They didn't, they didn't invent characters and situations and scenarios uh, for themselves to play, with very few exceptions. Once in a while, they played restaurant, and they put tea towels over their arms and pretended to serve us as if we were in a restaurant. But other than that, they didn't invent scenarios like, let's be pirates or, or let's be alligators, and this can be the swamp, and that can be you know, the boat. Um, they, they just didn't play like that. And whether that's because of genetic predisposition or maybe lack of nutrition in utero, because they all came from very poor backgrounds. In when they, so they adopted, each, each one was, I assume, in different biological mothers. Yes. Yeah. All three of them had different biological uh, parents, and all three of their sets of parents or parent or mother figure gave them up out of poverty and inability to raise them from third world countries. So one can guess that they didn't have much nutrition in utero. Uh, but also, back to your question, where does imagination come from? Why do some kids play with, with great gusts and fountainheads of creativity and other kids don't? I, I, I don't know the answer to it, but I love that you posed the question, Catherine, because it's something I've been thinking about my whole life. The other thing I'll say is, I don't know about you, but I remember my dreams virtually every morning of my life when I wake up, and I am a writer. I don't know whether remembering my dreams is a symptom of being a writer or whether being a writer has trained me to observe story where it happens, but many people I know who are very intelligent and very lively say, oh, I never dream, or I probably dream, but I don't remember anything. I haven't remembered a dream in years. And so I don't know whether there's a relation to that, and whether you know or not, I don't know, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, I don't know, but I, I also, I remember my dreams as well. My boyfriend, uh, he doesn't remember anything in terms of what, when he wakes up in the morning, especially his dreams, so I am very intelligent. Um, but So I don't know the answer to that. I, it's, uh, where, it's, I don't know the answer. Well, you're in your seventh decade, so you should have some idea uh, all your I, I, I should do, but I'm clueless. On the other hand, one, you know, to go back to Alice for a second, one of the things that Lewis Carroll did in Alice in Wonderland was he did not tell a story in a traditional quest narrative, which is one of the main kinds of shapes of story that we recognize. He, one of the reasons his work is such a work of genius is that he decided to tell a story with the shape and the uh, similitude to a dream, which, as we know, has almost no cause and effect and has almost no plot. Things change uh, in a second in a dream. Uh, Shapes shift, characters shift, they come and go, they reappear, they are never who they seem to be, and... That really is one of the reasons the book, 150 Years Later, Alice in Wonderland, has continued to haunt us, because it is a, it is a story narrative that is in a totally original shape. You know, you say the story continues to haunt us, How po- and, and maybe this gets back to, you know, uh, children today and creativity, but it continues to haunt us. How popular is Alice in Wonderland today? Is it as popular as, say, is in, and I'll say our day because we're kind of in a similar generation, um, given the access 
that kids have to iPads and, uh, and uh, pods and, you know, computers and all those kinds of things. Are they reading Alice in Wonderland? I, I, I believe, I'm, I'm sorry to say, I don't think they're reading it, but I think the story is as well known because of, <coughs> pardon me, the way that it's become embedded in, in, in culture in general. I think people were still reading it up into my childhood, which was, the, you know, I was reading it in the 60s and, and early 70s. But when I taught, when I began to teach college in the 80s, I would teach um, t- uh, prospective teachers of literature, of English, prospective teachers of children. And I would ask them, they were, they were young people, mostly young women at Simmons College in Boston. I would ask them, how many of you have read Alice in Wonderland? And a lot of people would raise their hands, but what they meant was they had seen the Disney film or they knew the general story. They didn't actually mean that they'd read it. And among those who had read it, well, I would assign it because I'd say it's important to read this, not just to know the Disney film. Uh, so I'd sign it. And then afterwards, they'd come in and I'd say, all right, now you've read it. Now you've all read it. How many of you liked it? And you know what? Usually less than 25% of the people would raise their hands and say they liked it. Most people found it creepy. And I have a theory about this. I think in the, in the 19th century, when Alice Wonderland was published, most of the children's books that kids had were little moral fables and instructions on piety and on proper behavior and comportment for middle-class white English children or American children. Uh, Alice in Wonderland came along, and it did not talk about being polite to your elders and always doing what was right and just. The elders were rude to Alice. They behaved like children. And sometimes Alice was rude right back to them. That was tremendously amusing in the 19th century because it was breaking all the the conventions, and that's part of what made it funny. (laughs) But by the middle of the 20th century, we were used to people being rude to grown-up people. We had already lost our respect for authority, and the world was getting to be a more dangerous place, and even kids understood it. So I think Alice Wonderland lost its power to charm in the way that it has had for almost 100 years, or even maybe perhaps more. Yeah, because it's done. It's a different context, um, is what it, obviously exactly. what you're saying. Um, exactly. We you know we don't have, we only don't have a lot of time left. But one of the things that I have heard you say, or read that you said, or what uh, that stories are, are therapy. Are they therapy for you? Does that mean the stories that you write are on is are ongoing therapy for you? I, I think they are, but I can't say I can't say what what exactly is being achieved, except that the and, and I'm going to I'm going to use a psychoanalytic term that I'm not really licensed to use, but the ego is a heavy burden to carry around, and perhaps the older one gets, the heavier it is, and the more one wishes to be freed of it. Uh, one of the advantages of being an artist of any sort. Even if you're, uh, you know, a singer in a church choir, is that you have to put yourself aside and subsume yourself uh, into the job at hand. If you're making music, if you're a jazz pianist, you are you are not person X paying so much amount of tax and having problems with your in-laws when you're playing a jazz piano in a jazz quartet. You are a musician listening to and responding to the music. And that job takes you out of yourself and takes you away from your ego. Maybe when the applause starts, 
you come back into your ego. But for the act of creation, you are excused from the burden of being yourself in subservience to your art. I find that the same is true when I write. I like being Gregory Maguire an awful lot of the time, but not all the time. Sometimes I think, oh, would that, would that blatherhead just shut up and, and let me get on with it? When I write, I stop being aware of being Gregory Maguire. I'm just aware of being in that heady dream space of creativity. And it's, it is therapy. It's a kind of balm, a kind of oil of Olay on the spirit to lose myself in the service of some other characters and some other story than my own tedious life. It's like journaling, keeping journals, um, which I, I do it occasionally on and off, but you know, just writing down your thoughts every day, which has a kind of, for those of us who are not writers, uh, but it does have that same kind of therapeutic effect. It has, it has some of it, but I would, I would say it, has a, it also it goes on a, on a kind of sideline to that because when you're journaling, you're really trying to pay attention to what you know. And when you're creating, you are taking what you know and using it in service of something other than yourself. Um, I, I, I really admire journaling too, and I have done it a great deal in my life, or indeed almost my entire life, ever since I read Harriet the Spy at the age of 12, uh, I think is really important to do. But I also think that, back to your question about imagination and creativity and where does it come from, I think that when you loose yourself into being creative in terms of invention, uh, in a way you're, you're, you're escaping yourself uh, in, in a really, you're, you're, you're like jumping into Lake George. <laughs> You, you plunge off the diving board, you're in the lake, and for that first 10 seconds, nobody can see you, nobody knows that you're there, and you have kind of, just for a moment, escaped from yourself. It's really, it's really um, the main reason I, I keep writing. After 40 years of publishing, I'm still doing it. That's a great description, and a great description we have to end the show on. Uh, it has been really a pleasure and fun talking to you today. Um, this is, we've been talking to New York Times bestselling author Gregory Maguire, and his new book is After Alice. And, and uh, we can buy the book on Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere, I assume. Um, and you can download it as well on your Kindle. Uh, just That's Gregory, right. And you can also check out my, my website at www.gregorymaguire.com. That's M-A-G-U-I-R-E. Right. We have to meet again in Albany, Gregory, when you come I look, back here. I look forward to it, yeah. and, and, and do come up and remind me that we've met before. I w- this time, yeah, I'll be much more bold. Yes, please do. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, we're going to have to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.